everybody. This is Rachel from Cornerstone Whole Healthcare Organization, and you're listening to the Life Support Podcast, the show that covers everything healthcare from behavioral health to substance use recovery and much more. Today, we're talking to Dr. Young, who talks to us about the beautiful potential for technology and care to work together. And I do my best not to interrupt him 19 seconds into talking. Thanks for joining us and hope you enjoy the episode. Well, welcome, Dr. Young. Could you start us off just with an introduction, name, pronouns, where you're from, what you do when you're not working, and I guess what you do when you are working? Although I've heard what you do when you are working, and I can't imagine that you have time for anything else in your life. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. My name's Tom Young. I was in family medicine for a lot of years. I graduated 50 years ago this year in medical school. Over the years, done a lot of different things, mostly in Idaho, taught medicine, still teach the medical school here. Enjoy my role. Last 20 years have been in behavioral health and substance use disorder. I've been a medical director for a large substance use disorder clinic. Also a medical director for the College of Idaho here, Doe Yotes. In those roles also have been in the business side of medicine, healthcare IT, building companies that relate uh, mostly to behavioral health for the most part, suicide induction tools, assessment tools, tools in space for substance use disorder and LUD, overdose prevention. So that's kind of what I do. Well, I think Rachel is right. I feel like you don't have much time for anything else, but hopefully you find a time to eat somewhere here or there. Could you tell us a bit about how you became interested in medical devices for overdose prevention? Well, that was that was very interesting. Uh, I began a company several years ago that's in the medical assessment business, behavioral health care assessment business. And one branch of that business is in research. And our tools are used around the world on a daily basis for research, particularly as it relates to things like suicide, depression, other behavioral health disorders, psychiatric disorders. Those tools are well known in that world. And there was a company in Scotland that was particularly interested. The Scottish people have a high dose of opioid use and a high dose of opioid use disorders. And I did some work in UK. So through the UK folks, met the physicians in Scotland. They were developing a product in Scotland, and they were also in the world of trying to use tools for assessment and behavioral health because part of the part of the issue around opioid use disorder is what I think, and it, from my own experience, has been that oftentimes we ask the wrong questions of users, and the first question is ask, why are you an addict? When really the question should be, what are you trying to treat? Because most people with opioid use disorders have a secondary comorbid behavioral health disorder. So the folks in Scotland were beginning to look at doing some research trials. We got into discussions with them about how that would be done, what kind of tools they would need to use to get to the regulatory bodies in Europe uh, with a medical device. And they were also looking at the FDA here. I've done a lot of work with the FDA over the years. The more I got to talking to them, the more I saw the the vision of what they were talking about and became interested in a particular device that they were looking at. And so I've begun to sort of provide some consulting services to them, not only about the research and the FDA trials, but also about how to, how do we change sort of the behaviors around opioid use and around opioid use disorder related deaths or potential deaths or overdoses. So. That's how that came about, and I, I stayed and, and am staying fairly involved with them and looking at how do we improve MAP therapy 
for example? How do we change how we respond to overdoses? What are the mistakes that are made in responding to overdoses? And trying to begin to look at how we can make some of those changes here. As you think about the current systems that we have in place, it seems like you, as well as other leaders in this space, have gotten to the point of saying, hey, we can't keep doing the same thing. It's it's not making a dent in this issue. We need to come up with innovative solutions. What do you see as some of the current biggest gaps or opportunities within systems of care for people with substance use disorder? Well, it, it depends a bit on the substance, but fundamentally, there I think there are a couple of gaps that occur, and that is, number one, we know how to treat opioid use disorder. We have medications for that. To some extent, we have medications also for alcohol use disorder. We have the ability to understand and treat some of the use disorder pieces. We don't pay enough attention to the combination of the comorbid behavioral health disorders and making the correct diagnosis at, at the front end and treating those disorders. For example, people with bipolar disease are frequent users of substances because during the episodes of mania, they're seeking you know, a treatment. Mania feels bad, mania is uncomfortable. And so they seek treatment, often that's in opioids. It could be in benzos or other sedative disorder medications. So we need to pay attention to that. And then I think secondarily, in the use disorder, when there is an overdose, one of the things that we need to pay attention to is how to treat an overdose. Currently in this country, and I think people don't understand, everybody says, well, there's Narcan and it's available. And yes, it is. The only problem is that if you're a user and you are perceived as in some sort of dangerous, and I say perceived because often people are not really at the point of death when they're given Narcan. But Narcan is instant withdrawal. And if you're a user, it is painful. It is uncomfortable. It is often disastrous in terms of the long-term outcome. Very often, if you talk to my colleagues in the ED, they will tell you, well, patients given Narcan in the field, the EMS brings them in. They've now had acute withdrawal. We have to keep them for two to three hours to make sure that when the Narcan wears off, the opioids won't. That is so painful and so uncomfortable. The minute that person leaves the ED, they go reuse to treat the pain of the overdose withdrawal. So we need, I think, to, to look more acutely at how do we manage. And also, if you look at an overdose for a second and say, that's a real teachable moment. If you think about it, if I'm nearing death and most people who take opioids don't want to die, I mean, they clearly that's not their intent. Opioids are rarely a chosen form of self-harm. Most of the time, people who overdose, they overdose within 300 feet of another human being. And that's 60 to 70% of overdoses. And so if you think about that and you say, well, counter to that, most people who commit suicide never commit suicide when there's people around. So it's clear that opioid overdoses are not suicide attempts. Given that, what I really want to do is, can I use that as a teachable moment? And I think more and more we're understanding, particularly in data from opioid injection centers, legalized opioid injection centers, of which there are several in New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, as well as in Australia and Canada and other places. 
What we know uh, physiologically is that most of the people who are perceived as an overdose status, if you will, if you do the right things, you don't need Narcan. Now, if you take that philosophy for a second and you say, well, if I don't need Narcan, now I have somebody who I know has withdrawn. I've followed them. They're no longer opioid overdosed. They're back to normal respirations because chest respirations and chest movement are what we perceive as, as the way to measure this. Now I can begin an immediate MAP therapy implementation. Now, in this country, most people do MAP therapy because that's the way doctors were initially trained. And more and more people are understanding that what you really need to do is take the teachable moment. And so the teachable moment is, can I help with lay people's health and the EMS people's health who show up, treat the overdose differently instead of just slapping people with Narcan and rushing them to the ED where they become a, a recurring cycle of leaving the ED, getting overdosed, often coming back within the next, within 12, 14 hours again with another overdose or perceived overdose. And then getting that person onto MAP therapy, which we know does two things. Number one, on the longer acting injectables, we can keep that person from craving for 30 days. Now, what does 30 days get? It gets me the ability, one, to focus on making the correct diagnosis on their concomitant behavioral health disorder. It gets me the opportunity to measure and monitor them. It gets me the opportunity to put them on some sort of patient program that they can interact with. These things that we have in our lives now are a wonderful gateway to people, but they're a gateway to people if you have the right software of it, connect with them, help them maintain their, their sobriety, help them maintain their return to function with MAP therapy. We need to, we need to work at both ends. Uh, we need to help understand how to better respond to what's perceived as an overdose. How do we move that to an immediate teachable moment? And how do we integrate behavioral health to that addictive medicine program? How to integrate those two together? And then lastly, how to engage the person over time, whether it's by remote therapeutic monitoring by primary care doctors, who in this country are really the backbone of both the mental health and the addiction treatment in this country. 85% of all uh, emotional health disorders, psychiatric disorders in this country are determined by primary care providers. 80% of all the medications written for psychiatric disorders in this country are written by primary care uh, providers. Pediatricians, not nurse practitioners, in terms of primary uh, family docs. Same thing's gonna be true for math therapy. And so the development of devices such as one this particular company is bringing, really improve the ability of a physician to understand the risk. A lot of doctors are uncomfortable with MAP therapy because they perceive it as risky. If somebody's on MAP therapy and they use, but if I have the right patient engagement and the right monitoring tools, because the, these, this particular tool, for example, based on the fact that most overdoses have humans around them, is a device that measures chest respiratory movement. And as your respirations go down, it accelerates. It has a loud noise and a beeping. That's what we know in the first stages of overdose. If you just holler at people, they'll wake up. You know, you have a, a, a voice 
recognition and they hear you and they, they sort of come out of it and you can kind of monitor their progress. Next steps, obviously, if somebody doesn't respond to that, is this thing is beeps loud enough that people in the respondent area can be made available, lay people. And then we start teaching a different method of doing that. If some lay person comes in, they shouldn't immediately slap Narcan up somebody's nose or in their leg, but they can do some other things. It's part, part of the training at that point. It, and again, if nobody comes, nothing happens, the device continues to accelerate what it's going to do and it eventually notifies the EMS and it uses a GPS locating device to say, here's a person, they're really in trouble, the respirations are reaching uh, critical stages, nobody's responded and respond. And again, at that point then, the device should be able to help an EMS responder who can look at a back, look at a little tablet, see what's actually going on and make a determination. Do they need Narcan or do they just need oxygen? Which if you follow the studies in these safe injection facilities, one example in Sydney, Australia, where they have one and, and there's been some studies done, they will have about four, they can have about 400 perceived overdoses, if you will, but only four of those ended up needing Narcan. Now in the real world, probably half those would have been that's, that's kind of the long and the short of devices have a role in connecting people, uh, continuing the connection over time, engaging them, and they have a role in, in preventing death from an overdose. I love the way that you kind of paint the picture of um, a device not being just like a technological intervention. It's, it's really adaptive and part of a system. So instead of being this point in time of like, okay, let's prevent the death at this point in time alert somebody, get the services, and then you get back into the cycle that it's actually getting somebody into a system of care that's broader and bigger and thinks about that long-term kind of trajectory for that patient within a system of care. And when I think about particularly the role of family medicine, you talk about your background and the role of family medicine, especially in the United States in managing some of these patients, it seems like it's a balance between those family medicine providers really being in charge of these patients, having authority managing these patients, but also having what could be some complex, seemingly conditions that might make them nervous when you start talking about psychiatric disorders and substance use disorders. So when you think about working with other family medicine providers, what's kind of your cell on having them support patients in this bigger system of care? That's a great question, Rachel. I think that's one that uh, primary care struggled with for a long time. Keep in mind the old adage, uh, it's still true. And like when I trained, the statement was 50% of the people that walk in your office aren't sick. And the reality is that's still true. 50% of the people that walk in office have substantive emotional issues as part and parcel of their of their reason to be there. And often sort of the frequent flyers that come in our offices as primary care docs are people that are sort of playing the doctor patient game, which is I'm going to keep coming in here until you ask me the right question or until you listen to me. Because there's also the old adage of William Osler, the famous English physician uh, said, 
you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you will listen to your patients long enough, they will tell you the diagnosis. And if you take in some of the data that occurs in our offices, it's about 19 seconds into the conversation when a patient starts talking the first time the doctor interrupts. That's not very long to listen. So besides that, if you take a look at the fact that really doctors have been hampered with primary care docs, we've given them great tools in everything except mental health. We give you a PHQ-9, and that's supposed to help you diagnose things. Turn, turns out that's not really true. Most people don't understand where those tools came from and why they're there. For those who don't know, PHQ-9 was invented by the marketing department at Pfizer back in the 1980s because they understood that to get their drugs written more often, they needed to get primary care docs to write them because there weren't enough psychiatrists writing prescriptions for their pills. So they've invented the PHQ-9, they add seven, and they do what they're supposed to. PHQ-9, in current use, overprescribes antidepressants 154% of the time. It's doing what it was designed to do. And it also doesn't get the right diagnosis. You get the wrong diagnosis most of the time. So what do we need to do? We need to provide the appropriate tools. We need to do the same things we do with physical disease, which is we need to screen. What else do we know of all the people who successfully commit suicide? 30% of 50% of them saw their primary care doctor within 30 days. Now that's a scary statistic. We need to provide the right tools and we need to provide the right diagnostic information so that a doctor gets the right diagnosis and then provide whatever clinical decision support tools are necessary to help them with the, with the appropriate treatment cycles. Then everybody says, well, there's not enough people to treat people. I hear that from my primary care friends all the time. You know, I find these people, what do I do with them? Well, the reality is we're getting more and more capable technologically to fill that gap. We know, for example, that cognitive behavioral therapy by digital or by Zoom is very effective treatment. So the combination of medications and the combination of therapy, we know will treat most of these. You mentioned one thing, doctors are reticent to treat certain things. Bipolar disease, for example, is often complex. People with schizoaffective disorder, the more complex psychiatric disorders. But the key there is getting the right diagnosis initially and getting people to therapy, okay? Problems with bipolar disorder are that it is often misdiagnosed depression. Patients then have to go through the painful cycle of having a mania episode showing up in the ED, either incarcerated or hospitalized. And then we've spent tons of money and tons of time in doing that. So primary care doctors can be given the right information to make the right referrals. For example, there's more and more ability to get psychiatric consultation digitally. More and more companies are out there. There's a ton of them. And there are software products now in some of the EHRs built by other companies, including ours, that will help make the diagnosis. And then the other part of the puzzle for primary care docs is much like any other disease. Once I decide on a treatment, I want to know if they got better. Physiologically, for example, if I diagnose you've got hypertension, what do I do? I'd give you a pill and I measure your blood pressure and I follow your blood pressure. If the pill works, your blood pressure comes down. Pill doesn't work, blood pressure doesn't, I change pills. 
So the reality is we, we know the process model, but we don't have a process model in behavioral health with the right tools. So the ability to make, the, make a quick screen, find out what the risks are. No different than when you walk in your doctor's office and they ask you your history, your blood pressure, your pulse, respiratory rate, all that stuff. If your blood pressure's high, they do something about it. So we need to do the same thing, screen. And we need to screen regularly, just like any other screening tool. Then getting the right diagnosis, give primary care folks the right tools to make the right diagnosis. And then once they make the diagnosis and decide on what their treatments will be, the ability to follow and track your patient. Are they getting better? And it's it's the same cycle, only we've not provided that same cycle and same tool set in behavioral health that we have in physical health. And that's really the key. I, I think if we if we really sort of, you know, try and stop boiling the ocean and just start looking at What's the simplest and easiest thing to do? Screen your patient. I mean, ask them the questions. The old adage we need to get rid of, which is if you ask people about suicide, they'll go do it. That's clearly not true. As a matter of fact, if you ask your patient, you'll likely save them. It's silence that is the killer. Same thing's true of opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders. Asking about them is clearly key. And so the same thing's true. Screening getting the right diagnosis. If you don't know what to do with substance use disorder patients, somebody in your community does. So it's the right referral plan. It's no no different than you see a patient and you listen to them and you listen to their heart and their lungs and say, gosh, you know, I think you ha- you've had a heart attack. Let's call a cardiologist. It's no different. It's just I don't have the tools that I have for the other. So I think one of the things for primary care folks uh, is to just look at, look at what tools do I have in behavioral health, whether that's psychiatric disorders, substance use disorders, whatever it may be, then ask the questions. Find out from the patient. Yeah, I think going back to basics is kind of a, an interesting direction to talk about. I think innovation is so exciting, right? Like we can find all these solutions, kind of implement them, but it seems like you kind of keep going back to the point where you know, we might be, we might really be missing the important pieces here. You mentioned, you know, you're, you're up, coming up to your 50th anniversary since medical school. I mean, maybe we can kind of go back to like, what do you see right now as like most important or the most, you know, exciting direction for like harm reduction through innovation? And if you had to pick one area where you wish, you know, we would focus more on going back to the basics, like you said, like asking your patient the right question. I guess those two areas, where would you go? Talk to your patient because that's the source of information that you need. Take the time to pause to ask the right questions and then listen to the answers. And then secondarily, what's the technology? Well, the technologies that we have to create solutions like AI chatbots. And these are things that, you know, people don't mind talking to chatbots. People talk to chatbots all day long. Every, every time they call Walgreens, you talk to a chatbot. And we make these things better, more available, and help people. Because when you survey people who say, well, I, you know, I really enjoyed being able to express myself to that chatbot. That was helpful. Create technologies. And one of the things that we're doing with some other technologies are 
creating things that will let me be at the patient's side at the moment that they need it. For example, if I track HRV over time, and one of the things we're starting to do with our technology is on every time when we ask people a test question, you know, a series of what we call subjective questions, we also track their uh, HRV. So now I begin to paint a picture of the HRV for people every day. And if I watch that over time, can I use that to let me be there in the moment that says, hi, Rachel, looks like you may be struggling a little bit. How can I help you right now? Give you a perfect example. There's these things called aura wings that are used to track sleep and some other things. I had a recent death in my family and we were at the bedside for several days, up all night. Patient was expiring in hospice and my scores were on on my ring. I mean, normally my scores are in the 90s, 80s and 90s, and they were down in the 40s and 50s. So had somebody been watching that, they would have gone, wait a minute. You've got two days with a 51 score. What's going on in your life? And I would have said, well, I've been up all night at my mother, mother-in-law's bedside and not sleeping well. And they would have known that. So what I'm saying is technologies can give us a better look and get us, because if you want to save people from over, over, overdose or you want to save people from suicide, those are momentary episodes, momentary opportunities. The closer I can get technologically to knowing when that moment is, the closer I can get personally to being present. I, it seems like you're kind of bringing it back to, you know, the I, using technology to our advantage to bring us back to people where maybe technology could kind of propel us. You know, innovation brings us further and further from people, further and further from kind of that the core issue we're trying to address. I think it's great insight. I think it's exciting to think oh, you know, I, I put this thing on my leg, I trigger something, and then, some, you know, a substance is goes into my body and s- saves my life, and I never have to see a single person. But maybe that's, you know, really far off and kind of thinking more Star Trek-y here. But I love kind of how you you bring it back to, to real world. Like, how do we do this? How do we connect this to, to real people and real solutions? Well, I think I learned there's a guy named Tom Insel. Tom was head of the National Institutes of Mental Health for a long time and then was the, the head of mental health in California for many years and started Google Health. Smart guy. He, he, and he's always impressing. There's two, three things that are really important, I think. And when we, and we talk about substance use, mental health disorders. And that is all people need three things to be mentally healthy. Uh, and that is people, place, and person. People, I have to know who has my back. And if I can't answer that question quickly and easily, then I have a problem. Second is place. Where am I in life? Physically, physiologically, homelessness, all the other SDOH things that we talk about. What's my place? And then the third is purpose. What's the purpose in life? So anybody that can't really respond quickly to those three things probably has, has some risk. And in my own practice, I ask those three questions almost every time I see a patient. Tell me who's got your back. And, and I started using the number five. Tell me the five people right now today that have your back. So if I, ha- if I have to build technology, for example, I want technology to be able to get those five people to talk to you right now when you're in, tri- when you're in crisis. How do I do that? Well, technologically, we can do those things. 
It's a secondary place. Where do you live? What's your housing? What's your situation? You know, what's your place in, in sort of the world you live in? I can know that. Get to measure that. I can see if that goes off filter. And then the last one is purpose. Purposeful life. People need to have purpose in their life if they can't elucidate that. You know, and you can ask them that. Say with what we call ecological momentary assessments, quick questions that they can text out, like yes, no, maybe, whatever it is. All those things are doable, but we need to make it easy to get those three pieces of information because anybody that's an, an addict, anybody that has a mental health disorder will always have at least one of those, if not all of them. So I think that those are some of the simple, easy things that people can focus on and technology can help you with that, but it still comes back to, you know, it's a people issue. Well, I think that that's a wonderful place just for us to kind of close the conversation. And I am so looking forward to getting you back for more conversations, Dr. Young, because you just paint a wonderful picture of technology as a tool. It can help facilitate the connections, but it can't replace the connections. And so I think it's just this model of using these tools within healthcare to do the the meaningful support for patients, but it doesn't stand in a vacuum. It's it's about what's happening with providers and community. And it really gives me hope for what technology can do as somebody who cannot turn on my computer like every third day. Um, not, not having a world where I exclusively rely on technology gives me hope. And that wraps up another great episode of Life Support. Thanks again to Dr. Tom Young for speaking with us. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to help us spread information like this to more people, you can like, comment, and share this video. And if you don't want to miss out on more episodes like this, remember to subscribe on whichever platform you're on. You can even leave a comment with any ideas for future topics. Uh, Until next time, remember to help each other out with a little life support. 